Hi, I'm Christine Dore, owner of Neo Coco. And I'm Tammy Tan, owner of Spice Home. And we are co-owners at Kitchen 519, our shared-use commercial kitchen in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Let Us Wrap, the podcast about food, food business, and the people who work in the industry. Today, we have Mary Cohen, Global Workplace Experience Program Manager at Adobe. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so yes. much. I know Mary for five over five years or so now, because previously you used to have a catering business called Gastronauts. That's right. And then together, we actually went to a food retreat called Eat Retreat. And yes. we spend a memorable weekend <laughs> <laughs> together Indeed. and stuff. And then my store used to be in your neighborhood as well. My yeah, Spice Bernal Heights. I loved, I loved stopping by. So I guess let's start with your background. Like, where did you grow up? I mean, mm-hmm. where did you get your love of food? <laughs> uh, I grew up in New Jersey, Central Jersey. And my love of food is probably just innate um, Jewish family. There's food at all of our gatherings. And it's just was always there, always an important element in my life. My grandmother did a lot of cooking. And, you know, we always used to be around that. Do you do that now, too? I mean, do you gather your family around and do a lot of? For sure. Yes. Um, I think the experience of food bringing people together is always what's inspired me from the beginning. And I've became my family's default caterer for a lot of our family celebrations from a pretty early age. I just was really interested in that. And so, so yes, I carry that through till, till today. Um, the, uh, the holiday of Passover is is coming up for me. I think by the time this airs, it'll be passed. But um, that's a big annual tradition in my family that no matter where you are, who you are, you make it to my cousin's house in Natick, Massachusetts. Oh. There's usually over 20 of us for two consecutive nights for the Passover seders. And I orchestrate all the the cooking and menu planning and all of that for that. But it's a really really engaging experience for everybody. Do you make everything completely like from scratch? Pretty much, yes. Even the gefilter fish? <laughs> the gefilter fish, we've kind of, some years it gets ordered and so, and we have made it from scratch, but it's probably one of the things they found a good gefilte fish supplier that they like. And so, but more often than not, we even make that from scratch. Yes. yes. <laughs> I actually remember when I was in my early 20s and I wanted to make gefilte fish from scratch and I called my great aunt in Israel and asked her to describe to me how she did it. And she kind of is this very like no nonsense kind of person. And she just, she was like, all right, I'll tell you, but you know, they sell it in the frozen section. <laughs> She's kind of like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you can make it, but you don't need to. <laughs> right? Yeah. But is, how about the matzo ball? Is that like a family guarded secret? Or? Um, no, not really. Um, we definitely start with the mix usually. Okay. Um, and, and that's one of the, there's a few things that, you know, people own different family members own. And so, so my, cousin's mother-in-law always makes those so they just they just show up and then we often make another one that might be a little more of an experimental version but it's my chicken soup recipe oh cool chicken soup recipe everybody brings everybody knows what everybody's making everybody brings their thing no No. (laughs) (laughs) it's not always your chicken soup well it is always my chicken soup she always brings the chicken soup and matzo balls and then other than that, it's basically me and my whole family acts as my prep cooks, and they all just want me to tell them what to do. 
and they're like novices every year. It's like a blank slate. (laughs) And I'm like, here, do this. And then they do. And they've learned over the years, but they, they really love that I'm in charge. And there's this kind of frantic energy about it. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We're never going to get it done. And I'm like, it's okay. I've got prep lists. I've got a plan. People pop it. Yeah. People pop in and out because there's babies, you know, like that need their attention. And there'll be like a cutting board with half of the carrots chopped and the other half not. And so people just kind of come in and out and it's this crazy, intense, you know, stressful, but fun um, experience full of all of the family drama that anybody who's had any kind of family holiday experience, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, all of that stuff. And then usually there's like my whole generation stays inside my cousin's house. So there's like six families with young children, 14 boys under the age of <laughs> of now 14. Um, so it's nothing like, like working in a, uh, yeah. a, a kitchen. Um, no, it's like totally not. I use my skills, but it's a very different context. <laughs> is, is, this, management. is yeah. this worse than Thanksgiving for you? I mean, uh, is this bigger? Oh, much bigger. Yeah, it's yeah. the biggest event for me uh, in terms of like family holiday. It's, it's the biggest thing for me by far every year. Oh, wow. yeah, it starts... So there's the the holiday of Purim comes about a month before. And so as soon as Purim's over, that's when everybody starts like panicking and wondering what the, the plan is. And, you know, and, you know, we'll exchange our email. Do, do, the do you start order. the email? Do you you, start, I usually like, wait for this, them to be like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I'm making a plan in the back of my head. You know, oh, the time, so. a planner. Yeah. So in total, how many anyway, people? Um, usually it's roughly 20 people per night With for two boys? nights. With about half of them are kids. Is that true or is it 40? Seems like too little with that many kids. Yeah, I know. It, there's a lot of kids. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll count and, and let you know. Yeah. <laughs> Get back to us on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, we went down a whole <laughs> tangent of Passover. I could talk about that for a very long time. No, Passover is so interesting. Yeah. I find. I mean. Yeah. I think it's important because I think it's the jumping off point for how my career has evolved. Mm. So I... Yeah, so I could probably, like, I think I see my career through the lens of that and as it's evolved in different ways over the years. So I I started out on a totally different career path. I didn't start out in food. I was on, I was in academia. I, I studied evolutionary anthropology and psychology as an undergrad. And I was really interested in non-human primates and social cognition. So the underpinnings of empathy and culture. And fully intended to go get a PhD and keep studying that. Um, And so I started a PhD program at Stanford. That's what brought me out to California. But I was studying human babies and not non-human primates, basically a geography thing with my partner at the time, who was also applying to graduate schools. I kind of compromised and went and studied people instead of primates, non-human primates. And I guess that, you know, just culture is probably the one unifier in all of that, right? So I was interested in in culture amongst other, you know, social creatures and how they understand each other. But a couple years into that, I had a bit of an identity crisis. And as graduate students, we would always talk about if we could do anything else, what would we do? And um, cooking and being a chef was always my pipe dream that I spoke up about. And I totally thought it was a pipe dream. But when I had that crisis, I decided to go ahead and take a leave of absence. And and I didn't have any connections in the food world personally. Um, my only experience had ever been cooking at my summer camp. And um, I cooked at a kibbutz in Israel for a few months. So that was it. I had no like context for professional cooking. 
But my cousin was an engineer at Google, and this was early, early days for Google, pre-IPO, you know, maybe in the hundreds of people at the at the company. And I had been to visit him a couple times, and they had this crazy, interesting food program where you just got went up there and got lunch for free, and it was kind of a hippie atmosphere. And so um, that was my only touch point. So I asked him to help me get an interview, and I did, and I tried out, and as probably a lot of people know, Google was founded by some Stanford dropouts. And so I think they thought it would be kind of cool to have a Stanford dropout in the kitchen. So that's who I (laughs) became. (laughs) And they hired me. Um, I later found out that several people thought I was probably a spy from, you know, from like, you know, the other side, right? You know, like, oh, like, oh, for they, she went to Stanford, she probably knows, you know, the, the engineers that work here, and she's just spying on us. But it was it was definitely I thought I was on a leave of absence, but about two years into it, I realized that I had found my calling and decided to really dive in at that point. What a complete fluke! Yeah, yeah, I mean, and almost the perfect company, right, for this launch, right, yours, right. right. So it was it was it was perfect because of the scale that happened. So when I started, there were about twelve people in the kitchen. And I was a prep cook. And when I left seven years later, I had grown to be an executive chef. And there were over 21 cafes in Mountain View alone and over 650 kitchen employees. And they had, this was the beginning of it all, you know, this whole Silicon Valley food scene. And so they had really attracted a lot of really amazing chefs that I was learning from. So I didn't have a, I don't have a restaurant background. I didn't cook in restaurants, but I learned from a lot of restaurant chefs in a corporate environment. And I learned really quickly. I had to learn quickly. So if I learned anything, I learned how to scale quickly and I learned how to fake it till you make it. Um, (laughs) I never really, you know, dove into cooking technique in any given area. It was more just like, figure out how to do this and then figure out how to do that and then figure out how to do this other thing and just keep going. So no time, no, no need even for culinary school or no regrets right. of not going to culinary school because well, you were in the best education. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely think, I feel like somebody who skipped a few grades, you know, where there's like pieces of knowledge missing that I would have gotten if I had gone to culinary school or spent a lot of time in a restaurant learning, developing skill. So my current career, I've really evolved, um, expanded, including food, but beyond food to focus on experience design. And I'm really interested in creating and designing experiences that help people live and work better. And I don't think I realized that at first. I was very, you know, interested in food, but I... I think what has always inspired me about food, going back to the Passover thing, is the power that food has. So the food itself, yes, I'm interested and I loved cooking and I love being creative, but I see food as extremely uniquely powerful to make all sorts of other things happen. And I think I saw that in the Passover stuff, right? I see what it does to my family and how it brings us all together no matter where we are and helps tell a story. And I saw that on the ground in Silicon Valley and how it transformed the culture here. And so I am I'm really interested in that. And I've evolved out of out of being in the kitchen. Um and even at my catering company Gastronaut, I was the CEO, not the chef, because I I like making things happen with food. So tell us more about Gastronaut. Sure. So Gastronaut, after I left Google, I founded Gastronaut with my business partner, Nate Keller. And we we weren't sure exactly what we were going to do at first with it. So you had already been, you'd already been working for Google. And then why did yeah. you decide to leave? Um, you know, <laughs> Google was at a transition point. 
like I mentioned, it was really, really big at that point. And things were starting to evolve with the food program. And it was kind of time to go go back to the start and um, re-envision what the strategy was going to be there. I was part of the team that built what it was. Um, so it was just a good point to leave, right? I could have stayed and a couple people did, but that was my major experience with food. And it just felt like a good time to leave, let the new guard come and reinvent it and go sure. reinvent myself. Or go and yeah. do, the, do the same thing with another company, but instead you decide to start your own business. Right. So this was 2008. So ah. great time to go oh, when I started start a my business. business. And I also got married. It was a really <laughs> great time to take a leap off a cliff. I think it's like the timing that we all started <laughs> know, our businesses. Huh? You too. Yeah. I yeah. Seven. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, they announced like the all the big news about the recession was like the week that I was married. <laughs> but anyway, um, young enough to go ahead and take a leap like that, and and so we knew we wanted to create creative experiences with food on the on the frontiers of food. That was our whole brand with Gastronaut, and I think we aspired to write really creative menus for cool events. Our network and our, our market, what they really wanted was our experience feeding tech companies, and they wanted us to do food service for their startups. And so that was most of the business that we got, in the, especially in the earliest days, was just deliver us breakfast and lunch. And so we still had our quirky brand around you know, creative food, but we really were leveraging our experience feeding people at work. And so that's what we did most, most of the time. That was your bread and butter? That was our bread yeah. and butter, absolutely. And is, um, did you felt like your company was one of the first ones there, like being an outsourced company? For sure. For a while there, it felt like we were the only ones doing exactly that. I mean, sure, there were other catering companies that would offer that, but in terms of it being our core, the core of what we did, it, it for a while there, it was, we were basically it. And then there were other companies like that were, you know, started early on that helped deliver food from restaurants or things like that. We were making it in our kitchen, in our catering kitchen. We had talented chefs that we hired to do it and make the food and deliver it and provide great service and the whole nine yards. So as large yeah. as, as it got, how big, how many employees did you have? When we closed, we had around 40 employees. So it got pretty big, got big quickly. So I have to go back <laughs> to the beginning. Uh, did you have any kind of business plan? <laughs> yes, um, we did have, we did write a business plan. I would say, I don't think we followed it. it like I said, I think we had one intention um, to have this creative food brand and kind of imagining more events. And it took a different turn. So why did you decide to close? Do you mind sharing? No, I don't mind at all. I think there are a lot of lessons from the business as a whole. And, you know, I think you hear a lot that failure is one of the most important experiences a person can have. And I wholeheartedly agree. I think the the experience of closing a business has been one of the most impactful in my career um, and kind of look, taking, you know, the hindsight view of what I did right and what I did wrong and being able to see things coming now is just, it's just a whole other world. So I think one of the biggest lessons, one of the things I ignored in my business plan, despite everyone telling me not to was marketing. And I think I, you know, I didn't understand marketing. I didn't have expertise in it. I didn't have a business degree. And so I was just like, oh, we have a market. We're fine. You know, we don't need to focus that much. There's one already built in. I yeah. To get any more. This is right. And, and the demand proved to be true. It was like, you know, it was just cut. We, there, we, we had to say no to people. I mean, we were just, we had people banging down our doors wanting us to deliver food to them once we got started. So I thought we didn't need to focus on identifying our target market or marketing to them or anything like that. And so 
what wound up happening was that we took the clients that chose us rather than the clients that we would choose. And and there were probably a lot of them we should have said no to, right? Because they weren't right for us or weren't right for our business. Well, and I know a lot of it you said was the creative part and did that part kind of dwindle away? It did. We got some of those and it was funny. I think kind of at the end was when we, had, one of the last events we did was like our dream event, right? It also takes a while and you have to, you have to be patient. And there were some other just personal factors of deciding to close or where we each were in our lives. But at the end of the day, we scaled so quickly. We, our biggest clients in the beginning were Twitter and and then Square. Um, so we, we grew with Twitter to the point where they were ready to hire a full service food service vendor. And, and we weren't ready to, to make that leap. So it was kind of a, okay, we're going to lose this giant chunk of our business. Do we try and fill it or are we done? And we mostly, we, we just, we, you know, thought about it. And again, other personal factors in our lives just decided we'd rather close. We had enough cash flow to do it responsibly, pay our staff, give everybody notice and all of that good stuff. So, um, so we decided to close. So you say that um, you didn't need to market, obviously, because they were coming to you. Yeah. How did they find out about you? Well, we had an amazing network. I mean, we worked at Mm -hmm. Google. So who founded all the startups in 2008 in San Francisco? (laughs) Ex-Googlers. I mean, it was just, it was limitless. Yeah. Everybody knew who you were. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) we catered in Jack Dorsey's apartment for seven people when he, and he showed us a prototype of the first square and he was like, Hey, look at this thing. And we, he gave us one. And I, I think I still have it somewhere. I mean, that was our network and it, it's cool, right? Yeah, it um, it, it's cool to be able to look back on all of that and say that that happened. But I think we more grabbed on to the end of the train and hung on and did the best we could. than we were driving the train from the front. So we, it was a wild ride and I learned so much and um, many other lessons along the way. So some of the big ones I think were really not forgetting about the the stuff you learn in business school, which I didn't go to. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no to forget. <laughs> so, um, you know, balancing the subject matter experts with people who know business, I think is really important both ways. You know, I think we could have had somebody on our team who was more of a business expert and similarly, you see food startups all the time that are tech startups, really, and they forget to have a food expert in the business. And I think those are also tend to be lost causes because food is not a widget, right? And mm-hmm. it's made by people. And so I think it's really important to have both aspects in any food business. So it sounds like you learned some things. Yes. Do you, <laughs> do you think someday, maybe, yes, you'll do something again? Maybe. I love my job. Um, so in the future, yeah, in the future, future. totally. I think I have an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I like to create new things. Um, and fortunately for me, I get to do that now in a world that also provides great job security. So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, with a great, amazing company that I get to work for, um, I don't think I mentioned it yet. I work for Adobe. Yes. We'll see one day. Maybe (laughs) I have ideas. (laughs) (laughs) So when you were first, uh, when you first got hired by Adobe, Mm -hmm. it was actually as an executive chef, right? Correct. And so now you've come full full circle around, right? Right. So you got to take a little bit of um, your degree that you were kind of studying for and put it into your new position. So global workplace experience. What's that mean? Right. 
our mission is amplifying Adobe's culture and business through uh, designing meaningful and inclusive experiences. So what's Adobe all about? You might have an impression already, but I can go ahead and tell you um, technology, creativity, We are also known for being a very sustainable company. Um, We place high value on diversity and and inclusion. We care a lot about our employees' well-being. So these are all aspects of Adobe's culture that are are really critical and important. And so the workplace experiences are anything that that are the, the experiences our employees have in the workplace when they're at work. And so our programs, we have programs built around those uh, specific to food, well-being, and events. And that's what my team does. We oversee those. I have colleagues um, who also focus on workplace design. So everything from the architecture to the furniture to the graphics you see. Uh, but my team really focuses on the programs that I mentioned. Did you create that role, uh, the workplace experience role? Was that something that was envisioned by somebody so yeah, so I my um, my manager is Eric Klein. He is the uh, director of global workplace experience overall. So I mentioned other colleagues uh, focus on architecture and design and um, research. So what's the future of work and how will will people even be sitting at desks in the future? That kind of thing. That's on the wider team, and Eric oversees all of us. And so when I started, I was doing food. We had a well-being strategist and a, a few event strategists, and I worked with Eric to evolve my role to oversee all the programs as one one team. And not just specifically food, like right. you were saying. Yeah. So when you have these programs, um, you have specific events that you're trying to create. What percentage of that is the events and what percentage of it is sort of organic, you know? Right, like- right. So we really, um, my there's a lot of teams that put on events at work. And there's also external events. That's a whole other world than in the marketing department that Adobe does for customers and whatnot. But events that happen in the workplace, many of them are grassroots. Many of them are by you know departments or things like that. We're really, like I said, focused on events that amplify Adobe's business and our culture. So let me give you an example. <laughs> so, um, a lot of companies have a bring your kid to work day kind of thing or a, like a, a summer picnic. And we've had that historically. But at a certain point, we realized um, the event strategists on my team really wanted to create an event that was uniquely Adobe that would deliver business value to us, that would really tell a story that was relevant to Adobe and not just kind of like, let's have a carnival. And so we now have something called Adobe Field Trip. Um, it's a field trip for our the kids of our employees to Adobe, right? So it's it's a field trip for them, and it's that's a, a term that they're used to from school and whatnot. And so they come to Adobe, and we have this amazing event that showcases technology, creativity, and in, in our workplace. So they come and they get a day that's not just come and sit next to your your parents' desk for the day and watch what they do, but learn about and and have a passion for technology, learn about and have a passion for creativity, and experience you know, in focused on kids, food and well-being and an event that is just, that is really amazing. And, and so the past few years, we've really developed this brand to really tell that story for Adobe. And it's really powerful. Um, We've had people write blog posts about it, everyone from an intern to our senior vice president. And I've even had um, departing employees mention that this is one of the hardest things for them to leave behind is that their kid won't get to come to Adobe Field Trip. So we know that it makes a big impact on people and we know that it it helps uh, us tell the story of Adobe. 
So are you like a spoke in the wheel of that whole <laughs> event? Me personally? Yeah, you yeah. And, and your team. So my team, I, there are two event strategists on my team and they designed this whole thing and they execute it too. And uh, one of the newer things that we do that's a collaboration between food events and well-being really is something that I launched uh, called Green Monday. So like I mentioned, Adobe is known to be a very sustainable organization and tries to promote sustainability through our products, but also our workplace. And we really wanted to find a way to amplify that with food. I think food is uniquely powerful in, in changing culture, and I can talk all about that for a while. But uh, we decided to have one big global food event to help send this message out. So in collaboration with our sustainability team here at Adobe, we celebrate Earth Day with Green Monday. So we encourage people to consider just for one day a week eating a plant-based meal. And and that way they can make a really big impact on the environment because of the it, it just has a much smaller carbon footprint. And so we have catered plant-based meals all around the world for this one day. Uh, it's the single largest shared food experience at Adobe. Um, we've hit over 25 sites with it this year and um, over 11,000 employees will be participating. So it was actually the third year in a row that we're, we're doing this. And this is the biggest yet, best, biggest and most organized. <laughs> how, how has the, uh, the response been? Really positive. I mean, I think Adobe employees get that sustainability is important at Adobe. And so I think a lot of people really appreciate it. Some people have a struggle with it too. You know, it, we actually call it Green Monday, not um, Meatless Monday, like we have in the past, because we realized, you know, if you want to change behavior, taking things away from people and telling them they're bad is really not the way to do mm -hmm. it. And so in general, we really try to promote the positive rather than, you know, highlight the negative. And so we're really focused on just encouraging people to eat plant-based as opposed to taking anything away. In the past, when we kind of got on the Meatless Monday, it's a, it's a, it's a thing out there in the world, right? So we, we got on the bandwagon with it and it did fall flat with some people because, because they felt like we were trying to take something away from them. So this is a bit of an experiment. We the term Green Monday, we didn't come up with it. I heard about it at a food conference, Rethink Food, that this was a struggle other people have had too. When you try to do Meatless Monday, it, it can be seen as pretty negative. And if you're a carnivore, you kind of go, not me, I'm not interested in that, you know. Um, so in Hong Kong, they actually developed the the term and the movement Green Monday, and it's, it has a very similar sentiment, but it is more around embracing the positive. And so we're rolling with that this year. And, and it actually has really influenced our programming. So, you know, we've, we talk, we've thought a lot about how to handle breakfast. And when you walk in that day, like if you smell bacon, that's not the right message to send on, on this one day, but taking away bacon can be pretty divisive. <laughs> and so bacon, that's pretty extreme. It's hard to take away. Yeah. And so, um, we're instead really focused on what can we add to the day to make it, to give people a different choice. And so we're doing these really beautiful tropical fruit displays and highlighting what's fresh at the farmer's market and adding heirloom beans as a protein at breakfast. And if somebody needs their bacon, they can still go get it, but we're showing people there's another way and in a nice positive way. So uh, at the end of it, the next day, how will you know if it, if it was a success? Like, how do you measure? Sure. A big way we measure impact is, is through participation. So if we know how many employees we got in front of, 
pos- positive, negative experience, whatever, we know that we actually got our message out to a lot of people. So that's one major way. And then we kind of get gauge sentiment through social media channels and the feedback that the people on the ground hear. So I have partners who are helping execute this all over the world and I'll hear from them. They'll f- fill out a little survey and give us some feedback and we'll have pictures and we'll get an, an idea of the sentiment. And you'll plan to do it again, I imagine, and, and adjust. Right. Yeah. So all of the campaigns I mentioned, field trip was something that evolved over many years. It did start off as a bring your kid to work day, but then it evolved into what it is today and we keep scaling it and because it's so successful. So this is our third year with this kind of thing with uh, Green Monday. And so, um, and this is the year that we actually feel like we're getting the playbooks together where we'll actually be able to rinse and repeat a little bit next year instead of inventing so many things. And that way we can scale. So a major thing that we see in San Francisco, you know, in the restaurant scene and just any services right now is that there is a shortage of labor. So how is Adobe kind of addressing it? Or, you know, how how have you seen any tech companies in the industry addressing it? It's a big problem for all of us. We we all are acknowledging it and trying to grapple with it. I think that um, there's no easy answer. And certainly there are things table stakes that you need to be able to offer like a living wage. And that's something that we've worked on here to ensure that we are competitive as far as living wage and uh, safe work conditions, of course. And in some ways, I think being corporate food service is able to offer safety and good HR practices by nature um, of kind of having to meet regulations around all of those things. So it's a little bit of an edge. But I'm happy to see that. I think those are the table stakes, right? But then you can layer on more perks and benefits. I'm I'm also happy to see that conversations around family leave and things like that are starting to become considered as potentially becoming table stakes or at least becoming more the norm. And, you know, you could look at supporting transportation, things like that. But beyond that, I think it's really critical to offer work experience for kitchen employees that's inclusive and meaningful. So we talk a lot about inclusivity in the tech industry. It's just as important in the kitchen to make sure that people feel like they have a place there, right? And so if you can offer a place where people have opportunities to learn, um, advance their career and be seen for who they really are and appreciated for that too, whether it's the, the skills that they bring or the culture that they're from, that can be really meaningful and nothing beats intrinsic motivation and loyalty, right? So if you get somebody who just loves being there and feels like they have all those things, I think that that can be a a true competitive edge in this market where you can always get outbid by somebody. We can certainly, you know, our employees could go make more money. They could, you know, because of the the demand and the labor shortage. So that's your way of retaining talent. Yeah. So we're, we actually are, are looking at more ways we can provide more programs to inspire our employees to want to be here at, in our kitchens specifically. So on the reverse side, obviously having this site specifically being in San Francisco, I mean, how much are you also uh, giving back to the community as well? Um, we talk about that too. And actually really recently led a, culinary summit where I invited other people from around the Silicon Valley to come together and talk about a couple big gaps that I see in our industry. One one is around diversity and inclusion, and the other is around technology. And I can get into that. But 
on the diversity and inclusion side, we talked a lot about having an exactly what I just talked about, having um, an inclusive experience, and that includes the community, right? And and we all we see it. I mean, I know that there there are restaurants that are struggling, and there's just no there's just a wealth of jobs for people that can cook, and um, the tech companies are poised to be able to pay better. So. Um, how can we give back to the community? And it's not an easy answer either, um, but it's something that we're actively exploring. So we would love to be able to have pop-up experiences in our cafes from local restaurants or vendors of various kinds. And we we do sell local products in our cafes and we have had experiments with pop-ups. It's not easy to figure out, like how do we make it worth it for that restaurant to come and spend all of their resources coming in? It's actually not that easy. So I have a team working on that specifically to try and make that that happen. In our newest cafe in San Francisco, we actually have a station dedicated to pop-ups and we just are still working on being able to host them (laughs) and Mm -hmm. making sure that it's, you know, on our side, it's a lot of work, as you can imagine, for the executive chef to have a whole different operation come in and will they comply with our regulations and will they know what to do and all of that good stuff. And for them, it's like, are we supplanting their farmer's market for the day or are we, you know, did they have to get extra labor that they wouldn't have had to pay for otherwise? And so we've had some really great, um, my team has had some really great meetings with folks, for example, from La Cocina, where we are trying to figure out what works for them best and we can design that in. So stay tuned. It's not it's not ready yet, but that's our intention. <laughs> but there's a lot of tech companies that have that pop-up space now. Right. Yeah. And, thing. and so actually, I think part of it is breaking down some of the barriers be- between us and and probably partnering. So Say Adobe wants to host a pop-up once a week, but a vendor needs to have the business five days a week. What if we got four other tech companies together, right? And we could say, mm-hmm. like, create the same program for all of us. I think we're starting to break down those walls a little bit. And that was part of the point of that um, summit that I hosted for people in, in the industry is we can be working together and not each be creating our own separate programs all the time. And Again, it's easier said than done, but I think that's where we need to go in general if we're going to be able to support the community. I know that like in in some ways, I guess uh, the food truck scene has kind of helped that a little bit. For right? sure. Yeah. I know there are t- companies that will invite food trucks. That's an easy, yes. quick yes. way of doing For sure. pop-up, right? Yeah. But- and we have a food truck festival once a year that we do in San Francisco. But that's, you know, a one day thing. And that's also very one specific type of business. Right. They even have a food truck. right? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's nice to hear that you're also considering other, you know, caterers or anybody who doesn't necessarily have the food truck to do that. For sure. We actually our new buildings um, down the block on Hooper Street. And it's part of a, a project for the, the designation of the building for the city is PDR space, which is production distribution repair. So the ground floor of that building is supposed to be all makers of some kind and and then we and then it's office space above to kind of help with the rent right so like a company like adobe can pay the rent for you know the office space and then the pdr space is supposed to help local makers so sf made is in the same uh, building and we actually recently sat down with with them to talk about how we can collaborate and we had some great ideas come up including just featuring you know any of their food vendors featuring them selling their products at our coffee bar it's, that's easy enough to do so things like that and we are we're already we have a guest roaster program for coffee and andy town roasters is our guest roaster now and they're an sf made you know vendor so it's there's all kinds of synergies that can happen and and we we welcome those so what is your ideal five years in the future 
thing? Like, what do you want to see happen at Adobe in five years time? Um, so I have a more aggressive timeline than that. <laughs> but right. I am thinking about the future a lot. We are building a whole new section of our campus in San Jose, which is where our headquarters is, and basically doubling our footprint, doubling the number of people that we have down there. And so we're thinking a lot about the workplace and the food experience of the future. And it's so cool to be able to work on that uh, with a really great design team. And so what is our vision for that? We know the world is changing rapidly and technology is disrupting all kinds, all, all aspects of our lives, in food included, but it's still a major gap. I think the food industry is very far behind in catching up. Um, you see innovation where it's, when it's started out that way through, you know, tech startups that get that focus on food, but just reimagining your food, your existing food service program with, with these things in mind is a lot more slow going. So my vision for the future of food at Adobe is that we have the most inclusive experience possible for both our Adobe employees and the kitchen um, employees, and that we'll have achieved that goal through the innovative use of digital experiences. So Adobe's mission is changing the world through digital experiences. And so, like I mentioned, I, our mission is really about amplifying Adobe's business and culture with our programs. So given that, how can we leverage the the power of digital experiences to help us achieve the future that that we want to achieve. Do you know of any other companies that are doing this that you admire? They're doing it already or are also trying to do it? Exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not sure. I don't know as much about all of their their missions for their specific programs. Yes, there are lots of other companies that have innovative food programs that are doing cool things. In terms of some of the more startup world people, I, we've done a couple pilots with Eat Club for our, for a couple locations that we have that don't have easy access to food or aren't big enough to have a cafe inside them. And I've been really impressed. They've been really successful pilots. And I think what they, what the reason why is that they've created an experience that holistically is really great and it's highly personalized. And we all hear a lot about the future of food is personalized nutrition and personalized experiences. And, you know, when I first heard from them having done gastronaut and it's the same market, right? They're, they're feeding the same market. So I asked, I grilled them with this question and that, <laughs> what about this? And how do you do that? And have you figured out this? And, and they had good answers to everything. I almost like couldn't stump them. And so I thought, okay, this is interesting. And we've done a couple pilots and I've met with their, their CEO and their whole team. And they're very interesting and thoughtful about what they're doing and why. And I think the one kind of word of caution I have to all of us in this, crossover of tech and food world is thinking about food brings people together. And, you know, I always say sharing a meal is the original social networking. In the future, that should not change. It needs to not change. So as we go into a world that's ever more technological and virtual and online and not connected, we need certain experiences will stay real and need to stay real like food. So food is still food <laughs> made by... And basic. <laughs> and very basic. We all need it. You know, yep. it's the only cultural experience that every single person experiences daily, right? You can get through the day without listening to music or going to a baseball game, but if you go the whole day without eating, you will feel it. And so it's extremely powerful and it, it needs to stay powerful and real and it needs to continue to connect people socially. So as I think about that future world that I described that may have sounded abstract around inclusion and technology and digital experiences, it's still an, a, a future that is real food bringing people together. So one of the things I'm really excited about 
for our new building in San Jose. Uh, we have two main features to the program. One is a big food hall where we can have a lot of authentic experiences around different kinds of cuisines and bring all of our most of our employees together in one big space. But the other is a communal dining experience that is even more doubling down on disrupting that whole we're disconnected thing. And people will be able to come and just sit down with whoever's there or with a group, come with a group and have shared family style platters that they eat there. And we know that food, you know, brings people together at 10 companies and creates these casual collisions where, oh, I didn't mean to see you here. And we have this conversation and then it leads to great things. We're doing that. And we are also designing for more formal collisions <laughs> where uh, we're saying you will collide with these other people <laughs> right make eye contact and share a meal and share a plate <laughs> that's kind of like the the happy hour bat and kind of things yes. right i mean yeah. that's where you force people to collide because you go yeah happy hour i'm gonna serve beer fridays right. or right. whatever and if you want it if you want the beer you want beer yeah, you gotta gonna come, come and <laughs> interact mm-hmm. with everybody but i'm um, kind of getting back to the eat club if I am I familiar with them where you order your meal ahead of time on their mm-hmm. website and all that. So that isn't really, I mean, creating an inclusive right. experience, right? So but yet you, you're feeling that they are successful. So the reason yeah, so I'm interested to see how it evolves. And I asked them about this, because I, I worried that it, it can create an experience where people just grab their food and go back and sit at their desks and don't interact with people. And so I I kind of challenged them on that. But I know that they didn't give me a kind of like, oh, well, that's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to optimize for convenience kind of answer. They actually take that responsibility very seriously. And that's why I think they're one to watch. A lot of, you know, there's a lot out there that's about optimizing for future convenience. And we're going to take a dystopian concept and turn it into real food and sell it. Mm-hmm without naming any names. <laughs> but but I, I appreciate that w- when a technology company understands the potential for it to go one way and to actually use the, that technology to to hopefully create more social interaction. I mean, I, I appreciate their business yeah. model because you're talking about like, if you have a small tech company and you're bringing in caterers, you're still a potential for a lot of waste or whatever mm-hmm. it is. I mean, even though right. catering for, you know, a hundred employees or something like that. And then, so what eClub is trying to do is like, you're pre-ordering, you have to order the day before. You don't actually w- have to, you can order by 10 a.m. Oh, get, by 10 a.m. Which is in- impressive. Yeah. <laughs> they, but they have a set menu. Yeah. You order it on their website and then they deliver it to the company. So there is And a, you and get your specific thing. There's like a little cubby and it'll be like, your food is in B4 and you go to B4 and you get it. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because it's like, yeah. you know, they, they cut out the waste and, you know, you're ordering exactly what you want, you know know what you want you yeah. did and all this stuff and, and then you can give feedback on it and rate it and so it starts to optimize your menu recommendations and the kind of food they send to your company and things like that and it gets really personalized in this this world of personalization that we're in but it had it also so it, you could have a culture where everybody go, go, goes right their meal and comes it. back right or you can say hey there's this place where everybody's going to pick up their meal then what? You know, maybe that also creates those social interactions. And I, I do think the onus is a bit on the the company that orders it to create the culture around that. And so we're just starting, the, they're just interesting to me. Um, we just piloted it. We, we're actually just finishing up a pilot in one of our locations. And that's one of the things I want to look at if we decide to continue with it is, is there what what does it sort of naturally do? And is there something that we can do to to encourage people to make it more social? How do you find work-life balance? 
for yourself? I mean, raising a family in Ooh. San Francisco, <laughs> working for a tech company. You know? Right. I So I mentioned that I love my job. It's my dream job in part because of what I get to do and, and really, you know, just designing innovative experiences with food and, and now also while being in events is really, really cool. But Adobe is also a great employer to work for because of the support of all kinds of people, but in particular women and in particular families. We we have global pay parity, so I know that I'm making what I deserve. Um, we have a really great maternity leave policy. I got to take six months off with my um, most recent baby and a really great welcome back program where I was able to transition back in. And then we also just have a general ethos of work-life integration, more like more than work-life balance. And so if I need to get something done for home while I'm at work or vice versa, it's all kind of okay. And it's a lot of it just works out in terms of the culture itself. So like, that's all nice to say, but does it really does it really seem like it's true in the culture? Is that how people interact? And and the answer is yes. It's it's kind of when I interviewed, everyone told me how special of a place this was. It was hard to believe until I got here and I, and I got to see that people here really are genuine and there is a support. So it, it there it's also being an older company has been around for you know thirty years that there are lots of families here. And so I, it was a very big culture shock actually for me to go from startup life where it was no big deal to schedule a meeting for 6 PM to like people walking out the door at four fifteen, you know, right. to leave, to go get their kids. And so it's actually pretty easy to be able to have that balance. There's still a lot of demand. There's still a lot of work. There's still those times when I have to get up early for a call or stay up late to talk to India or things like that. But it's balanced enough. It's it's reasonable enough. Um, there's a lot. There's just a culture of reasonable expectations. Like we don't expect you to be here around the clock. We also don't provide food around the clock. <laughs> you know, it's just reasonable both ways. And then and flexibility. And that's sort of a Silicon Valley thing too, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if they, if you're not a morning person, <laughs> you probably yeah, can start we, late, we right? Yeah, we do have a little more. I mean, I can't speak for other departments, but we do have a little bit more of a conservative culture around like business hours. People are here earlier and they leave earlier for sure. But there's also a general ethos of, like I said, reasonable expectations. It's not even flexibility. It's just what's your life like and how we, can we be reasonable about it? Um, your the articles that you write. Do you hope to someday make that into some sort of something, <laughs> something, something bigger, or or why Maybe. do you, why do you write their articles? So I think I have a lot of thoughts, <laughs> and I think I have a lot to say. And I actually, it was something that I decided to start working on over the last um, year or so that I have focused so much on my career and my family and giving, giving, giving that I forgot to sort of focus on my own career and. I met a really amazing woman who her whole her whole world is helping other women tell their stories. And she really sold me on the importance of telling my own story and getting it out there. I think it's gotten me opportunities like this and others. And so I, I just I think it's important that people tell their stories. And so other people can hear them and understand what's possible in the world. So that's the main reason I'm doing it. And it's just, it's been great, because I've seen things happen every time I actually take a step to go put my thoughts out there in the world, positive things have come from it. So sure, I'd love to for it to turn into something bigger one day. Um, I'd love to write a book. I'd love to, you know, speak at more public speaking opportunities. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, sure. Do you mind sharing your her name? Oh, yes. Amanda Hirsch and her company is called Mighty Forces. She's awesome. I've referred many people to her already. I just keep sending her clients. She's really great. She's really great. 
She's based in New York. We met on on a women's group on Facebook. Like it was, yeah, social media. <laughs> I, I knew I wanted, actually what I did was, believe, um, now that I remember it, on maternity leave, I decided to spend time on my personal brand. And I was looking for somebody to help me with that. My LinkedIn page didn't really tell my story. So even just helping to figure out that what I am is an experience creator and, a, and not necessarily a food person. Because I, I, I switched from saying, well, I'm a food person, but I like, I'm a chef, but I feel like a chef who skipped a few grades. I'm a chef, but I don't really cook anymore. I'm a chef. And it was like, that wasn't describing who I really am and what really drives me. And she really helped me get to the point where I could say, I'm passionate about creating experiences that help, help people live and work better. That's at the core of what, what I do and why I do it. And food is like, is just, to me, the most powerful way to do that and is my playground. I feel about food the way chefs feel about their knives. It's the most important tool in my bag, but there are others and they're important too, right? So well-being is important. Sustainability is important. Events are important. So are, you know, microplanes and immersion circulators, but everyone loves their knives. (laughs) And I love my food and I'm never going to stop loving it. It's, you know, it's always going to be, I think, core to think how I think about creating great experiences. So when you were on your maternity leave and you had connected with Amanda, that was before you became a global work workplace experience? Yes. So you envisioned your role, <laughs> right? I For mean, sure. I knew that, I mean, my boss has been great about just talking to me about a future path and career path and wanted me to be able to advance in general. Um, and was, you know, we, we worked a lot together on envisioning what that could be, but yes, she definitely helped me envision it and crystallize it. And now it's now here I am. Doing is this, it. is this a title? Does anybody else have this title that you want to know of? Not that I know. Of. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, not that I know of. And I struggled so much with title when I was hired as oh, executive yeah. chef. I was like, but I'm not an executive chef at Adobe, but it, it was something that people could understand, that people at Adobe could understand, business people. They're like, yeah, we need an executive chef. We need a food person. That's something I see at other tech companies. And it was something that leadership could wrap their head around that Adobe needed to hire an executive chef. Workplace experience programs manager is not as glamorous or as easy to sink your teeth into. People don't go, ooh, tell me more, when, like they did when I said I was executive chef. But it really is more accurate, and I'm, I'm proud of it. So, Is there an executive <laughs> chef here? So we have executive chefs of our different operations. So yes, we have local executive chefs. That genuinely is when we envision yes. it as an executive chef. For so, sure. Yeah. So then you weren't. Right. So I was I was designing the food culture for Adobe and and I designed menu and I still do menu programs for new cafes that we built. So it would be up to me to say this cafe is going to have a pizza station and, you know, a grill and well, these are the types of menu items that we're going to serve. So at a very high level menu design, yes. But on the day-to-day basis, we I work, we work with our operator, Bon Appetit, where they have executive chefs. I have a very close relationship with them. So I'm kind of the person that holds the food culture for Adobe. And I talk with the chefs every other week on a phone call and, you know, I'm still very connected to them, but they're the, they're the creative chefs and I want to really prop them up for what they do. Well, how has your degrees, (laughs) how do they apply now? It's funny. I get a lot of jokes about, oh, we're all monkeys and it's just the same, right? And to a certain extent, yes. (laughs) Sort of. That is, that is true. I actually think we need to realize more how we uh, human beings, homo sapiens are animals too, as opposed to, um, you know, 
lending more humanities to animals. I think it goes both ways. We are. And so there's a lot that I understand about people, about human nature. So I think about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs that you learn about in psychology and in anthropology and how, you know, food and water are very basic and elemental. And that's how I know they're so important. Right. And you, you ignore that to your peril. Right. So Every single day, if you're a C, say you're a CEO and I, I came to you and I said, what if I told you that every single person at your company has a simultaneous experience daily and that experience has the potential to powerfully shape your culture? Would you want to, would you want to mess with that experience? And what CEO would say, no, it's hunger. Everybody gets hungry every day. It seems obvious and basic and it is obvious and basic, but I think I just can't not see it because of I've been studying it for so long. And then the other big way that I leverage my degree is is just Excel and statistical analysis. <laughs> um, I'm kind of known as that, like Excel, everything is a spreadsheet and I like to look at data, um, which isn't always something that's a core expertise in, from chefs in the food world. And so trying to help my team members understand how to ask the right question and find the data to support it is something that I, I love doing too. Back to showing, yeah, how do you show success? Right. There you go. Spreadsheets. Exactly. Spreadsheets. Right? <laughs> I love spreadsheets. <laughs> but you also, you must consider yourself a designer. I do. It's funny. I didn't, I wish I knew that design was like a career I could have because I probably would have gone to school for it. I didn't, it wasn't in my consciousness. I've, and now I get to work with like designer designers, you know, architects and graphic designers who make the graphics that you, you've seen your, at Adobe today, and you've seen them on the walls. And now working, I've since I've been at Adobe, I've built, um, quote unquote, built uh, four new cafes with a team of architects and designers and all the different trades and everything. And I'm in progress on three more, I guess. Um, and so I've, I learned so much about the design process that I never knew before. And it's fascinating to me. And so, yeah, I think I'm, a, I'm an experienced creator, an experienced designer, um, and I love doing it. That's awesome. Thank you, Marit, for spending your time with us today. Thank you for, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for listening to Let Us Wrap with Christine and Tammy. Thank you to our editor and producer, Jason Anthony Guy. If you like our show, tell a friend. Ask them to subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Take it away, Marie. Until next time, it's a wrap. <laughs>